0: Do you remember the first conversation with Martin or Peter when they said we should start this business?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I kind of do. He sort of even mentioned YouTube right at the start and I went, you what? Because I I wasn't even watching YouTube. I didn't even hear it. I thought it would have been better if it was called YourTube. But um, yes, I remember the first time he said it to me, I sort of didn't quite understand it because again, the last thing I would do was be on the internet. So um, uh, this is way back. You know, like 12 years ago. So um, the initial thought was, I just got to get my head around it. So you want people to upload work. So, oh, you've got to get people to actually know where you are. And they've actually have to have some artwork actually done that they want to upload onto your site. So then I thought, hey, that's going to be so hard to get people to actually put their artwork up on your site, let alone turn it into a product. So I was a, I was a bit skeptical and I thought, well, I'll, we'll keep working with it.
0: This is Scale Up from Launch Vic, I'm Courtney Carthy, and you're hearing Paul Van Zeller, one of three co-founders, talking about pretty much the earliest days of the business. Paul isn't too involved in the company at the moment, but much like back then, he still runs his design agency in the northeast of Melbourne. He was the designer of the very first version of the website in 2006. Remember, and it's a good thing to keep in mind for this whole episode, in 2006, Facebook is only two years old, not even accessible to everybody at the time. Until the 26th of September that year, you had to have a university email address or be an employee of one of a few chosen companies to register. In articles the following year, 2007, there's even mention of MySpace as an indirect competitor. The founders of Redbubble thought about the concept they'd created and they all decided they didn't like it. A bit of context to what Paul says next Cafe Press is a site similar to Redbubble, it's a print on demand service.
1: Well, the first concept was to be a bit like Cafe Press, where we create products and have artwork on it, and we all started doing wireframes and talking about how it would look and blah 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 and and then we just realized after about six weeks hey we don't really want to do this is are we really interested in doing that Um, becoming another sort of cafe press situation and we thought no we don't want to do it so then we just flipped it and we thought we want to have an artistic integrity about our site and what we produce and who we represent so that's my first initial yeah introduction was that that this sentiment appeared in the
0: founding team fundamentally changed the tone and business model for Redbubble that exists vehemently to this day. Here's Martin Hosking, the second and longtime CEO of Redbubble, speaking at the Yenar Conference held in Melbourne by LaunchVic last year.
2: You can start with the customer, but we decided the place where we wanted to start was with the artist, because that was who we sort of ourselves as, and that was what we wanted to
0: bring into the world. Redbubble would become a three-sided marketplace and not so much a personalization service. Long term, this has been hugely beneficial. A link to that talk at Yeah is available in the episode description, along with a couple of others. One that shows the iterations of the Redbubble front page from when they launched and also some servers in the back of a car.
1: Martin drew this um, diagram where he drew a little white circle in the middle and he said that's the art and then a big pale blue circle on the outside which was massive and he said that's the community and I didn't quite get it at the start but he was right, the art builds the community and then all of a sudden it became a massive community of artists.
0: After the heady days of the global financial crisis, we take a step back two years and explore some of what went on in the very early days, months and years of Redbubble. Much like last season with Culture Amp, the fact that Redbubble is so successful and made many decisions along the way that contributed to its success doesn't mean everything was smooth or planned as it might seem in retrospect. It's easy to neglect the uncertainty at the time in favor of a bold, calculated, and correct decision-making process that helped the company beat a path from foundation to funding, growth to profitability, and eventually certainty. It just hasn't happened like that. Hello, if you're a new listener, and thanks if you've been following the podcast. Either way, please share it with a friend who you think would enjoy it too. The series is made possible by LaunchVic, who's helping startups here to grow and scale. They're creating the infrastructure necessary for it all to happen, and there's great information and events all listed on their website, launchvic.org, and the socials, just search for LaunchVic worth touching on here is how the founders chose the name it was one of my first questions and over time it's become a vessel for the brand pretty much on purpose but for someone trying to name a new company perhaps you are at the moment the process described by martin first and paul second is very insightful uh, we were
2: looking for a name in 2006 we knew it was important that we had a name which was spellable which we could get a global trademark for which was reasonably memorable uh, and which did not limit us directly by the name itself so we could have got a name like uh, you know artonline.com possibly or something like that but we realized that, that would uh, limit the potential scope of the business uh, other names which we could have got weren't, weren't particularly memorable or they weren't spellable or you couldn't get the trademark or you particularly you couldn't get the url so it was a name which matched those criteria and it was a name which we could actually fill with meaning as we have over the time over the years
1: sort of red bubble resonated straight away um you know red meaning you know fire your heart beats faster it's a loud color yes the idea and the word bubble was your own space
0: to get red bubble off the ground a business plan had been written and shopped around to known investors pre-launch They raised $2 million. This is rare, but not unexpected for someone who'd helped list the first Australian company on the NASDAQ at the turn of the century. We 're almost uh, uh, to be honest well, I was almost uniquely qualified to raise it
2: because there were people who were backing me because of my previous involvement with look smart and so I'm not sure that they were you know raising two million dollars on a business plan there's not many people who can do it and I could only do it because you know people that already made hundreds of millions of dollars based on their
0: earlier investments in stuff i have been involved in so you know that's not a very replicable story in general I'm going to leave it to Martin to give you a brief chronology here the specifics ahead are aren't essential but illustrative of how the company moved through the early years before they needed capital again during the GFC. Here's Martin.
2: So Rebel was founded on uh, in April 2006, so we're just coming up to our 12th birthday now. The website launched on the 2nd of February 2007. During that period of time, we raised money. So we raised money initially on the back of a business plan for, from April through to October or so. Uh, we were writing a business plan. We then went out and raised money just on the back of that business plan. So we raised just over $2 million on the base of the business plan. We then used that business plan and some initial investment which we'd made to put into the website, and the website then launched on the second of February, uh, two thousand and seven. Very early on, we were international. So during two thousand and seven, uh, we were uh, launched globally, and we went in multi-currency. So you could buy in US dollars, Canadian dollars, euro, and and the pound. Uh, we got our first fulfillers on board during 2007 the fulfillers are the partners who do the manufacturing on behalf of the artists uh, delivering to the customers that's that's how it works but during this time it was actually also what's often talked about as the valley of death for marketplaces. Marketplaces are very difficult to get going because you don't have any customers and you don't have any artists and you don't have any or sellers uh, and that's a reinforcing loop lack of sellers means lack of customers, lack of customers means lack of sellers and so it took us uh, quite a few years to get through that, and was very slow, hard slog
0: for those first um, four years or so. Early versions of Red Bubbles homepage are very much of the time
1: back then. A homepage for a website was almost like, you know, a big image with the word enter, and then you go into the website. And you know, these days, you know, you can't afford to lose that that click button. You have to have them in the website straightaways. At the time,
3: your options for building. Uh, sort of websites where you sort of had sort of traditional Java type um, systems, which kind of took a while to sort of get going. There lots of bits and pieces you had to configure.
0: Xavier Shea, one of the early engineering hires at Redbubble, he joined in April 2007, only a couple of months after the website launch. On his LinkedIn profile next to Redbubble, his title is listed as Rails Guy with the description, I make the codes for the website. You can see it if you look them
3: up. And the thing that Ruby on Rails really brought to the table was, hey, we can get you going fast. Like, we can get you shipping products insanely quickly compared to uh, what was sort of standard for the day. Uh, and so this was really compelling uh, at somewhere like Rebubble, where particularly early on, we didn't really know what the site was. Um, you know, were, were we an e-commerce site? Were we a social site? We kind of wanted to do both. If you want to do both, what features does that mean you build? Uh, and the answer to that is well, we don't really know, so we need to try a lot of stuff. And one of the things Ruby on Rails let you do at the time, and was try things very, very quickly. And that was actually more important than building something that we knew could scale, because at this point, like we don't even know if we have a company. I remember it sort of being relatively stressful as far as like we have to figure out how to like get this sort of growth curve that would make Redbubble sustainable. Part of I that just means we needed to be able to try a lot of things very quickly. And so that that was really what we were optimizing for rather than, uh, you know, scale. And I think if you you look at some of my code from that time, uh, you can probably tell.
0: Xavier had joined at the first office in Argyle Street, Fitzroy. A few months later, so would Natasha, to help build out a different but equally important area of the business. The books.
4: So my name is Natasha Skano-Kinsey because I'm a financial accountant in the Finance Steam at bubble.: Thanks. I had a call from one of the um, accountant at the firm asking if I was interested in um, sort of joining one of their team members in helping out with the books. So to meet him at this office in Fitzroy, which was not an office, was actually a townhouse.
3: Like it felt like you were going into somebody's house. Uh, like was in a residential apartment complex and we had, you know, a kitchen and a bathroom and with the shower in it, that, like it felt like, and we, we just sort of shuffled desks as they would fit uh, into like living area and then the bedroom. I
4: was very excited because it was a startup and I thought it's brilliant, i like to be involved in something that is new and I can grow with a company and I can see it inv- evolved. And when I walked in, I came dressed up in a suit and things like that and I just remember walking into the door, we just walked into a garage, it was all painted black. You know they were pretty laid back, dressed in you know shorts and some didn't even have shoes, um, t-shirts, and they took, took me upstairs to what was a kitchen and living room, and one of the old director of the company that was a co-founder with Martin uh, Peter Style, was there to meet me together with one of the original engineers Xavier, who was having breakfast. So it was like very laid back, and they said, "Oh." nice to meet you um you know you can come upstairs into this bedroom where they had like a desk with thousands of paperwork and a girl by the name of bridget came to greet me and told me a little bit about rebubble sort of really digging in straight away into the back myob books that were back then
0: myob would come to almost haunt natasha russell greenwood a product designer that joined the company soon after. Hinted that it was something I should ask her about. We
5: had like a machine that was in the office that every day it, uh, I think every day it downloaded like a whole set of data from the website and then like turn, did some ninja backflip thing on it and turned it into a MyOb file that we ended up breaking MYOB. It's obviously not what it's for, but <laughs> it's one of those things, right? Like as you get bigger, you've got to fix things one at a time. Uh, eventually we obviously <laughs> we don't, we don't use MYOB anymore
6: so, uh,
5: but that machine would be like some random computer shop under a desk somewhere doing this one thing that was very important
4: oh my goodness yes MYOB was the first uh, um, system, accounting system that we had in place a um, couple of updates later um, one of the stories is probably that yes I used to be late at night midnight one o'clock in the morning panic mode when the, 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 the syncing app would die halfway through and the data would not um, get uploaded into NYOB and the system will just crash. Um, how many transactions were going through a day? Oh, in the thousands.
6: Hi, this is Xavier Russo. I'm general manager of Certsi, which is an in-house startup at Seek. Uh, and we're here
0: in, um, I think it's Epicure Cafe, just down the road from uh, in, in St Kilda Road. Another Xavier, Xavier Russo, who joined Redbubble to help with marketing in 2006, the foundation year. He was there for another 12 months. At this time, a lot of the business is being developed. Processes are being put in place, so there's a process. And lots of decisions are being made because they just have to be.
6: One of the things I remember we debated a lot was around how do we put artists in control of their pricing? How do we... How is, pricing going to, how is pricing going to work on the site? So we have certain costs to manufacture things. Um, the artist has a certain value they're placing on their work, but there's going to be lots of products. You know, at the time, there might only have been a, a small product range, you know, a handful of products, but we knew that there were going to be many more. And where we settled there was sort of this model of, we'll set a manufacturing price, and then the artist can choose their markup. If they want to mark it up by 20%, that's great. If they want to mark it up by 500%, you know, all power to you. Uh, and I think... You know that was one that we tried to do a bit of the thinking up front we didn't spend too long on it but we tried to pressure test different scenarios like how would it work for that and, and actually having photographers in the mix there was really helpful because they seem to be more commercial more commercially savvy in some ways um, perhaps because you know there's you know licensing their work and they've been dealing with other online marketplaces like Getty and so forth so they tended to go, look, the, the cost price, what it pre- cost to produce this artwork and put it on the wall, that's irrelevant, you know, it's about the value. So they were very value-based in their view of pricing, whereas not everyone necessarily was. And when you have, I suppose, a lot of people in the community who were emerging artists, you know, they didn't have as much experience in how do they price their work. Um, and so it was helpful having the photographers there going, no, no, I want to be able to put a 300% markup on this um, because it forced us to confront that issue. And so this approach we had of choose a percentage markup on on a manufacturing price that we specify sort of met both needs. We we knew that the cost would be covered, people wouldn't be selling below cost, um, but also that the artist was in control of what they charged. Um, And I suppose looking back, it's quite satisfying that that approach seems to have scaled. I I don't know the details since, but it looks like that's still the model. And even now there's 60-odd products and um, hundreds of thousands of artists that, that, that...
2: getting that model right early on I think was an important thing. The complexity, it's a very very complex business, one of my board members which says it's a simple business strategically a very complex business execution wise and it was true for many years, not quite so much true now that what you see on the website is only, a, you know, is a tip of the iceberg, uh, and the reason for that is it's, it's not quite. So, is it? For many years, most of the work was actually not building what the website was. There was, there was a bit of it, but actually building the, the back end to coordinate with the with the artists, to coordinate with the fulfillers, to make sure that an order went from to the right place that the that the fulfiller had the right order, and the right details about the order, the right place to deliver it to. Uh, that the fulfiller got paid the right amount amount of money that the artist got paid the right amount of money we had very very difficult um, uh, difficult accounting challenges and typically it would crash and we wouldn't be able to you know because you're trying to process you know 10,000 transactions or more and it, that was a t- trivial number by what we're doing now and so in the end we actually had to build our own you know accounting system to which, which is what we operate on uh, to deal to deal with the volume of transactions we have netsuite at the top which i guess is the accounting system but the transaction system is all we had to build this to pay out all the artists on time to keep track of the flows to get track, track of where where all the taxes are owed uh, and so um you know it is a very very complicated system to do that and that, so nets when we went to Netsuite to change the accounting system they said yes of course we can do it um, and then when we actually talked about talk to them it was clear that they could not handle the volume of transactions and while it, it doesn't the, the 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 difficult difference between us and a and a retailer is a retailer will only be playing you know 10 or 20 or 50 suppliers you know we're paying a hundred thousand artists so we've got tra- huge tran- transaction volumes on both sides of the equation as well as the fulfillers wow um in, and in multi-currencies as well so you're doing all of that in five currencies and in fact we did more than that but yeah we can pay artists in more than that those currencies yeah. Initially we had we asked we allowed the artist to pay by cut by check. And one of my jobs was to sign, actually physically sign these checks. For every month, I would just start signing, uh, you know, 100 or 300 or 500 checks. And the reason why they wanted the checks, and it's taken years to wean them off them, was because it wasn't the money. that they, they liked getting their check for $125 or $300, and then they'd frame it and put it up on the wall. I'm an artist. They wouldn't actually even cash the things. So we had all this, these uncashed checks. They did eventually get a stamp, which they could stamp my checks. So there was then somebody... Well, there was In those offices, there was an office where the printer, which was dedicated to producing, just dedicated to producing these checks each year. Each month.
0: Why did you offer that?
2: Uh, because we were we were we'd offer anything, you know. The artists, you know, I, but you can really got to remember PayPal was established, but not firmly established back then. Um, we were trying to pay artists all over around the world, um, and so it was just sort of, I don't know. We were just being I you don't know, incredibly overly nice. I think or overly obliging.
0: Yeah. Russell again from the product team and someone with a red bubble profile. That's very early days of Twitter. He has Russell, no last name, much like Paul Vanzella has Paul, Martin has Pilgrim as their profile names on Redbubble. If you want to look them up, go ahead. They're there available now. We've listed a couple in the show notes too. I'm yet to speak to someone at Redbubble that doesn't have a profile on the site, which I think is to be expected. But back to Russell going for the interview in the second half of 2008.
5: The way that I was interviewed for a bubble, in air quotes, was an email saying you should probably catch up with this engineer. And then I came to the office, and it was when they were like sort of half moving to the US or whatever. So there was one person in the office, and then the engineer Xavier um, sitting cross legged on the floor next to his computer that was uh, there with his headphones on. That was it. <laughs> Uh, so we went and had lunch and then figured out halfway through lunch that we were talking about me probably working at Red Bubble. We both didn't understand why we were meeting.
3: Uh, I don't remember hiring him. I certainly remember him. <laughs> I, keep, I still keep in touch with him quite a lot. I really enjoyed working with Russell. Great. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't remember the hiring process though. Like even if I did know it was an interview, I wouldn't have known how to do it. So uh, <laughs> yeah, that totally sounds like me.
5: And here I am. We used to start the day with a whole company stand-up um, which was obviously about the same size as a single team stand-up now um, but that would be wherever someone was so more often than not we would have you know someone riding a bike calling in, you could hear them riding their bike on stand-up uh, and then we had a couple of people that were in different time zones and so we'd find a way of recording the stand-up audio really basically um, that whole time zone communication thing is something that the, the more you grow, the more complicated that gets. Uh, but we would go through, you know, what's everyone doing? Is anything blocking anyone? All the basic stand up stuff, but for the whole company. So, whether that was a customer service person or an account person, we'd be talking to everyone. Um, and then we really just get going. I mean, it's this the difference between really, really small and now is there's a lot more. It was a lot more like do what you need to get done regardless of what it is. So if you need to be researching what information architecture is so that you can make a decision on how to group products on a navigation and you'd be doing that, you wouldn't be like, we weren't necessarily like dividing ourselves into different kinds of customer or that sort of stuff because we only had, you know, I think when I started, there was two engineers two and then that went down to one and then none for a heartbeat and then back up pretty well, quickly to three engineers. but until you have the scale of the people that you can do like that deep experimentation and divide and conquer i guess you can't there's a lot more like don't want to say guesswork
0: shortcuts <laughs>
5: yeah yeah or a lot more gut gut feel stuff earlier on it's hard to put your finger on necessarily the individual things that worked as well. You can't historically magically tell that the you know, the slight adjustment that we did to the activity feed in March of 2009 had an amazing impact on artist activity. I mean, we found ways of experimenting on just about everything. Um, for a while, we used to do really basic things like Mark in Google Analytics when we changed the tagline on the homepage, which is... Which these days is ridiculous that we would measure something like that.
7: I joined Redbubble in the heady days of 2008.
0: Nat Tyler, you may remember her from the last episode, currently the Senior Director of Artist Services, this time describing the old offices in Richmond. Not a house, but not exactly the beautiful building they occupy in Collins Street today. Um,
7: it was a interesting space. <laughs> I remember visiting and it had... Um, It had a shower and a toilet on the second floor and a little sort of kitchenette. And underneath that was sort of the room that we used to use for conferences. Um, So if you decided that you needed to use the bathroom while somebody was having an important meeting downstairs, you'd have to make a lot of background noise, run the taps, do all of that kind of thing. Because, you know, if you got them at a moment where they were pondering something quite important downstairs... Um, it wasn't always the most convenient time to be to be using the facility so um, yes we've come a long way since then thankfully but it, it was uh there were a few interesting things with that office there was also a balcony area which I think at the time a few key people in the office thought was when you close the doors behind you it was soundproof it wasn't soundproof at all so there are a few key meetings that were held out on that balcony on the mobile phone and they'd walk back in and you know everybody is sort of type on and pretend that they hadn't heard what was going on so i do remember an occasion where there was somebody who was back inside the office They were speaking about that person um <laughs> totally unaware that this person could hear them inside so um yeah there there was i can't remember the exact details but it was uncomfortable i can remember that much
5: we had you know someone's random dog would just turn up in our office because they were wandering between the apartments or um people walking in asking if we were open because we had a bunch of t-shirts and stuff stuck on the wall that made it kind of look like a shop but it really wasn't a shop um you know we've we've always had people turning up at the office asking to buy things as well they'll figure out where red bubble is and turn up asking to buy things
0: with the company getting through the weeks and months people turning up natasha working on the books with others others coming and going xavier Shea describes the hardware situation around 2008 2009
3: i mean even quite late when i was there we were running on i think like four uh four apple servers or something and um and that was one thing i remember switching we had to switch away from the apple servers because that was a that was not a great idea we so had to switch from Apple to Linux. but even then, like it's kind of funny, right? You have this site, and you know we're in the U.S. and uh, we're in, you know, we've got traffic from Europe, traffic from the U.S. and Australia. We're kind of big. It's all very exciting. You know, all this traffic going through, and we're shipping out all this art. And then you go to the data center, and we we had like one rack of computers, and you're like, oh, is that is that it? Is that red bubble? It's like, yep, one rack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I always re- I remember that because I remember going to visit it and thinking, oh, it's like that's that's the entire world. I've sort of been living in.
5: Literally, we had servers in King Street in Melbourne at the time when I started. Um, and so eventually we've you know progressed to using a whole bunch of cloud-based stuff.
7: And I don't know, because I'm not a technical person, but I'm sure that there was something where we changed our servers or moved our servers around. And there is a photo that I do have somewhere of all of the equipment being in the back of someone's car.
0: There's a chance loading servers into the car parked in King Street took down the website. At least something like that is predictable, far less so was the diesel generator, the backup diesel generator to the data center where the hardware was. There were times when there were
5: power outages in the data center and things, and um, that would affect all of the local Melbourne things. And so it was like uh, really, it's really odd to, I guess, compare that to now when something like Amazon goes down, half the internet disappears, but we had the, The diesel generator at the King Street Centre didn't start up in time, and so our servers were down while they figured out how to get power back to the place.
0: And what would happen, they'd call Um, you and tell you that it was down? I
5: think we'd we'd notice there was no website. (laughs) So we'd be calling them, I think. It's probably more how that would work. Uh, But even then, so things like storing images for calendars that are huge files and dealing with transferring them between um, that data center and you know a printer in Horsham um, or other places, those sorts of files transferring them back then still complicated. Um, lots and lots of data. And, you know, it's obviously incredibly more data now, um, but that sort of stuff has got easier over time. We effectively turn the website off to change things. Like we'd have a maintenance page. Can you um, take me
0: through that? Like. Like that process where you go, all right, right, <clears throat> like at 10 o'clock, we're turning it off. Yeah,
5: yeah. So depending on what the release was, you know, some of us would go out for lunch because <laughs> there's nothing you could do. Um, but there's a, there was effectively a maintenance page that had a message saying, we're updating stuff, come back. Uh, which to think about now is absurd, right? You wouldn't take the site offline for, for a lunch while you updated things. Can can you take
0: me through one day when that happened? Do you remember sort of like what happened in the morning and then?
5: I think uh, one of the, I'm pretty sure it was one of our big uh, sort of data center moves where we, we, I think we were shifting things from an old data center up into Amazon or something and we had even prepared, we, we used to have like a spot where we could, Pick a YouTube video to put on the maintenance page to entertain people, but some of the engineers at the time filmed a video loop of themselves drinking beer um, that we put on the the maintenance page while we were doing some giant transfer between servers in the background that was going to take longer than normal. Um, So we obviously like, you put those things up. (laughs) I don't even know if we had a Twitter account back then, (laughs) Um, but yes. You, you always get the people who don't appreciate those things either and think it's real and uh, not really drinking beer while doing that. Um, but yeah, even back when we used to, there'd be times where things needed to be fixed and people would be literally connecting to a server and live changing code rather than doing a full sort of like deployment process that we have now um, just to get them done.
0: <laughs> um, so
5: there's obviously a lot different these days. <laughs>
0: Xavier Shea, again, reflecting on the early stages.
3: Yeah, I mean, I look back now and, like, knowing what I know now, having, you know, now done tech leadership and, you know, now knowing how to hire people, like, back then I was, like, I was just a guy who wrote a lot of code, you know. I mean, it was, it was it always felt like it was a big thing, but it always kind of felt like um, a, a bit of a grind. And I, I don't mean grinds in, grind as a grind to work. I mean, a grind as far as, like, figuring out the business model, Making, making the business model scale like getting people keeping people uh, making sure that you know our revenue exceeded our costs like it, it always just seemed like this big long grind and we were kind of always just head above the water you know um, and at least for the time I was there that sort of felt like that's how it was you know uh, and that can be uh, that can be
0: pretty tough one person and really the person at the front of that grind, working all the angles of the business to make it as viable as possible and incrementally to get it done. It was Peter Stiles the CEO at the time?
2: It, so this was really Peter took charge, and he really and he was just very, very focused on. It. Peter Stiles was very focused. He got somebody in who helped, but he was really the driver on it. renegotiating the prices with the fulfillers. You know, making sure that those because you know in those very early days, you know, we weren't sufficiently important to them. They were, we were we are a price taker. Whereas at least we could start to negotiate better prices. Negotiating negotiating better prices on what we paid for the blanks, uh, increasing our prices as necessary it's just the hardcore work negotiating better prices on you know it, it, it's 1% by 1% by 1% and it's just you know starting really focusing in the first few years we weren't wasn't part of what we were even thinking about it was all just about getting getting it out there and making it all work not about um, actually getting the growth There's a, this is a nice chart this is about you know people who grow uh, you know this is sales to the site so not many people were selling it the sales rate was very very low and then it suddenly hit a real inflection point in late uh, well i guess it is late 2009 or early mid 2010 it, it just go it's a real typical hockey stick
0: do share this one with a friend who's into startups and check out launchvic.org or launchvics social channels Links are in the episode description too, along with a couple of others mentioned. LaunchVic is helping startups here to grow and scale. They're partnering with world-class organizations to deliver accelerators, incubators, workshops, events, and more to a diverse range of startup founders, launchvic.org. While this episode was skewed towards the early days, next we'll look at just a snapshot of what it was like to
2: build the community. But it already started to emerge this this wonderfully quirky character, uh, which has you know become writ large in Redbubble now.
1: Art means so much to people. It can help them through, through grief or depression or, you know, it's such an amazing tool. And I guess Redbubble and the community spirit within Redbubble maybe helped a lot of people as well.
7: It, and then, I got a sales notification and I was just like. It was the biggest validation that I was on the right path.
2: And now I've been chatting up a storm with great people. I actually check their bubble first thing in the morning before coffee, before phone and before email. This was actually kept us going for really for three years because people weren't selling. We
5: had uh, like fictional employees like Mr Baxter, if you've been told about Mr Baxter.